I am plagued by insecurity. I look around at other women, and I can't help but notice how they seem to have it all together. Even Bible study feels like a study of what I should be wearing or what I should cook for dinner. My relationships are a mess. I don't have enough time to call my friends, much less go and visit them. I snap at my kids half the time, and I'm worried about them the rest of the time. I see my husband every day, but somehow I still miss him. We're in debt up to our ears, and I'm not sure what to do about it. I mean, do I stay home with the kids, or do I go get a job? Either way, I feel guilty. Most mornings, I look in the mirror and wonder what happened. My weight is up and down and up again, and my clothes never fit right. I work out, I try and eat right, but it's just never enough. Those perfect girls in the commercials drive me crazy. I know that it's all produced, but it still eats at me. I mean, is that what they really think I should look like? I try to push through all of these feelings. I put a smile on my face for my family, but I look forward to when my kids go to bed. See? Guilty again. Endless emotions swirl in my head like annoying little gnats. I'm tired. I need a break, and there isn't one. Ever. I'm so bored with the same routine, but it's also the only thing that keeps me sane. I just feel weak, and I'm so tired of feeling weak. I read about the Proverbs woman, and it should help, but it doesn't. My past is its own burden, and the Bible says I should smile about the future. I'm terrified of it. My dreams feel so far away. Sometimes, well, most times, I can't see truth through all of the mess. And no matter what I try to do about it, it's never enough. You know, this is one of the favorite Sundays of the year for a pastor to have to preach, right? That lost hour, y'all are feeling a little weary. And now you have the feeling that flies are flying all around you, and you're really going crazy. Hopefully that woke you up. Well, in not too many weeks, our kids and teachers are going to be enjoying spring break. Sometime this year, you might have had the chance to sit down with a teacher, and you ask that question. So how are my kid, how's my kid doing? Now, parents are funny because they, I think they anticipate one of two extreme uh, answers. You know, the, kind of inside, there's, there's, there's one set of people, by the way, we really will need house lights today, just they, they will go away, okay, thanks. Um, there's, there's one set of parents that brace themselves for the absolute worst. I mean, the world's coming to an end, my kid is, you know, falling apart. There's another set of parents that expects to hear that their kid is, you know, Albert Einstein, Teresa of Calcutta, that kind of thing. What if, what if, what if the teacher answered, not by extolling your child's sheer genius or excoriating her bad behavior? No, instead, the teacher said, Little Johnny, little Janie, about average. You know, your kid is right in the middle of the pack. Not the worst, not the best, average, ordinary. You go to the kid's coach. How's my kid doing? Ah, your kid is average, you know, half or better, half or worse. Then you go to your kid's tutor, you know, the one that specializes in prepping them 
at seven years old for the SAT, and you ask, how's my kid doing? And they respond, right in the 50th percentile, right? I mean, just sweet spot right there. What are the odds that you would respond and say, great, I have a normal kid. My kid is, my kid is average, right in the sweet spot of God's bell curve. I mean, absolutely there. Not going to change the world, but not going to destroy it either. Not a future president, but not a future prisoner. Not that the two aren't mutually exclusive, but anyway. <clears throat> Not likely. You see, when we ask the question, how's my kid doing? There's a small part that we leave out. How's my kid doing in comparison to the other kids? How's my kid doing in comparison to the masses? We have a way of measuring performance, identity, even our value and our worth by comparing to others. If you've done anything at all in social life as a human being, whether it's been a classroom, a boardroom, a team, or a tribe, you know there's a pecking order. Someone's best, someone's worst, and there's a whole bunch of people sitting right there in the middle. Sometimes these groups are given cute names. Brian in high school was part of Manuka's cross-country team, and their, their coach had a tendency to, to name them according to uh, how they were progressing. So uh, you had a choice. You could either be a flying squirrel or a caribou, a cheetah, or a grizzly. Now, I want you to just take a moment to look at these pictures, okay? By the way, this, this school uh, actually... The, the, the girls' team just won state, okay? So they're doing all right. They, they have uh, not many caribous on that one, right? You don't see a caribou just like racing it. No, yeah, if, if you, you want to be an elite runner on that team, you're longing to be a cheetah. Love that little squirrel, by the way, so cute. And a grizzly could eat you, so you, know, you might win that way. You just kill your competitors. But, but overall, you, you want to be the fastest. That's the one. The cheetah screams, elite runner. Sad thing, I would be in a separate group called Wounded Sloth, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) I want you to let your mind wander for a moment. Think to some of the earliest points of comparison in your own life. The kid who beat you out on the position on the team. The kid who edged you out for the A. Or, you know, your class rank went down a notch or two because of him or her. Maybe it was at home. I wish you were more like your brother. I just wish you'd finally do things like your sister. Can we talk real pain? Maybe you could just feel it. That the teacher really liked the other kid at the table. But you, you didn't really catch that vibe. In fact, you kind of got the impression she wished you were in the classroom down the hall. Maybe you knew not only that you were not mom and dad's favorite, but you could feel it. They just didn't really seem to like you. And you wondered why. You wondered what you did wrong. Stings, doesn't it? It really stings. There's this weird thing. We, we have a way of identifying our worth and performance based on how we're compared to others. Now, comparing in itself is not a bad thing. We can't eliminate all comparing, okay? Uh, you, you don't know if one big box is bigger than another if, if you don't do some comparing. And, and we do have to know which is faster, a cheetah or a caribou. So not all comparing is bad. We learn by comparing, but when I start to compare myself with another 
person. My ego gets involved. My ego wants to be exalted over another person. My ego feels like I'm going to be diminished if another person is enhanced. My ego starts to whisper whisper to me about envy and jealousy, and it gets me feeling very competitive. When I compare myself with other people, if I do better than somebody else, I feel superior. I feel puffed up. If I grade myself worse than them, I feel inferior. I feel unworthy. When we feel better than someone else, pride takes over, right? We're just being proud and arrogant. When we feel worse, that's when we start breaking that commandment that talks about jealousy and envy and coveting. We do this to ourselves. It's not the parents. It's not the teachers that do it to us anymore. We do it to ourselves. We make ourselves miserable. We just find ourselves comparing. So little confession time. Confession is good, you know, especially in church. I want you to think it through. Have you ever compared yourself to somebody, you know, based on your looks? Maybe you looked at their hair or teeth or physique, anything like that. Intelligence, grades, GPA. Maybe you've compared yourself to somebody else in their career. Maybe you've compared a house or a car, a girlfriend, boyfriend, a spouse to somebody else. You've compared your kids. You've compared what kind of parent you are. You're you're always, maybe you do a lot of Facebook comparing, whatever. If you've compared at some point in your life, go ahead and raise your hand. Yeah, you better, because we all have. Now, uh, if you've compared like that, raise your hand if you think you're better at comparing than anybody else in the room. Yeah, we've probably got a couple of those as well. What we have is a room full of sick people, right? We all have this disease. We all live in this toxic area that wants to know, am I a cheetah or am I a wounded sloth? I want to know the difference. I want to know where I stand. Now, this actually runs all the way through the Bible. Don't think the Bible is exempt from this sin of comparison. So we're going to walk through several scenarios, several vignettes in Scripture that look at how comparing myself to other people is miserable, it's toxic, it's an anti-kingdom way to live. And then we're going to look at how we can be liberated from such comparison. This sin, comparing myself to other people, is actually right at the root of the second sin recorded in the Bible. It's not necessarily the second sin in human history, but it's the second one recorded in the Bible. Adam and Eve, of course, sin by eating the forbidden fruit. The second sin involves a couple of brothers, Cain and Abel. This is what we're told. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. The first thing we tend to wonder when we read this passage is why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's not? Uh, There are a lot of theories, and most likely goes back to that word firstborn. Abel offered some of the firstborn of his flock. God loves it when we make giving generosity a priority. So he wanted to teach his people, give out of the firstborn of the flock, the very first thing, right off the top. The first thing I say is, God, here it is. Here's my tithe. It's yours. And I make that generosity a priority. Abel does that. Cain doesn't. He just brings something. He just brings something to God. 
Abel experiences what it is to have a generous heart. He trusts God, and he loves God, and he's living in the reality of God's favor and independence on God. That's where he is, and God loves that. God loves that generosity. God is a generous God, but Cain shuts that off. He just shuts that off. Cain sees the joy in Abel, and it grates on him. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Cain doesn't get mad at himself. Why didn't I bring the right offering? He doesn't even get mad at God. Why do you make me bring this and not what I want? No. He gets mad at his brother. He gets mad. He compares with Abel. He's thinking, if Abel weren't around, I wouldn't be feeling this pain. This wouldn't be happening to me. There's comparison. At the very beginning of the Bible, God speaks to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It's a fascinating story. God's kind of playing uh, therapist with Cain. There are no therapists at that time, so God takes on that role. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you just do what is right, wouldn't you be accepted? But Cain is not willing to respond to any of those questions. Cain just dehumanizes his brother and doesn't see him as a brother anymore. He just sees him as a problem. He just sees him as the competition, the real question God is posing, and a really good one for you and me when we start comparing ourselves to others is, what do I really want? What is it I really want? You see, what Cain wanted in his best self in his truest self, was to be a generous person. He, he wanted to be able to trust God. He wanted to be able to love his brother as he loved himself. But Cain isn't willing to deal with these questions being posed to him. Instead, instead, he decides not to respond to God, and he decides to sink further and further into his hatred and contempt. Keep going in the passage Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. There's a world of hurt and sin in that line right there. Now the first time, this is the first time Cain that is recorded in Scripture is going to actually deceive his brother. He has to say it like this to get his brother to go along. He has to actually teach his face and teach the tone of his voice to deceive his brother. And while they're out in the field, the Bible says, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. This theme of deception and falsehood and comparison runs all through the Bible and all through the human race. All through the human race, all through the Bible, we see this toxic theme. How come you have what I want? Why is it you have the thing I want? Two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, are estranged from each other. Then the next generation, two more brothers, Jacob and Esau, are estranged from each other. This is what the text says about them. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, the father, had a taste, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah, the mom, loved Jacob. There's a world of hurt in those words. There really is. Jacob and Esau are raised in an ugly family dynamic, a haunting specter, the specter of favoritism. So much damage is done in families when love 
turns, into, uh, turns away from unconditional acceptance to exclusively embracing one person over another. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. By the way, this damage of favoritism is damaging to both be people being compared. A lot of times, the only person we think of is the one who's kind of you know, on the downside of the comparison. But the truth be told, the one that's being favored is being weakened as well. Parents do this weird thing with their kids. You know, they'll look at their kid. Oh, he's the athletic one. She's the smart one. Why would we craft a kid's identity based on, you know, what a brother or sister is like? This is the athletic one. This one's not. This one's the smart one. This one's not. Parents do that kind of thing all the time, and it kills. Then there's Joseph and his brothers. Envy and rivalry there. This runs all through Scripture, all through Scripture. There's another story further along. The first king, King Saul. What the Bible says, it actually records this. Saul stood head and shoulders above every man. Comparison, right? The tall guy, the tall guy in the room became king. He was king. He names David to be a warrior, a general for him. They go out to battle, and the battle goes very, very well. What happens next? It says the women came out of all the towns of Israel to meet Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. And this refrain galled him. Why did it gall him? Was he kind of an anti-tambourine and lute guy? Wasn't into those instruments? Wanted a good drum? What's going on? No, it's the comparison. You know, the funny thing is, they're not denying that Saul has had victories in battle. Saul has slain his thousands. They're not denying that. But they're also saying that David has been much, much more successful. Ten times as successful. And this galls him. Look at the change of his posture toward David in this passage. It says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul isn't just jealous. He keeps a jealous eye on him. He assumes, he assumes this guy is out for something more. Comparison is that way. When I start to get jealous, I look differently at you. I don't see my brother. I don't see someone I love. I see someone who creates me pain. Why are you so angry, Saul? Why? I'm afraid. I'm afraid. They could take away my kingdom. Something precious is at risk. In the kingdom of God with Jesus, nothing precious is ever at risk. There's no reason to have this kind of clutching, this kind of comparison, this kind of envy, this kind of fear. Why are you so angry, Saul? I'm offended. They've credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. Are you kidding me, Saul? Who are they? Well, everyone. Saul. Who cares what everyone thinks? You're the king. This guy works for you. You're the man. Come on. If he wins, you win. Saul is so consumed with envy that eventually he rises to kill David. Of course, this is so often the way it works in life. The very thing Saul fears the most, loss of the kingdom, is what happens exactly. Precisely because of this grasping, clutching, jealousy, comparative way in which Saul lives. It's killing you guys. 
killing you, ladies. It does it all the time. This comparison thing kills. There's another way. There's a better way. If we go to the New Testament, we're told there was a man sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist. He has a message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming. Then one day John sees Jesus and says to the people with him, Behold, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what happened then? The Bible says the people started going toward Jesus. The people start drifting in his direction. Then the strangest thing happened. Some of John's disciples came to him and asked, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about, well, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to him. It's very interesting. John has disciples just like Jesus has disciples. John's called a rabbi just like Jesus is called a rabbi. John was baptizing people, and now Jesus' disciples are, are baptizing people. John's disciples are saying what? Hey, we used to be number one. We used to be the hot church in town. We used to be the one that everybody came to. We were most prominent. Everybody used to come to see us. Now Jesus, the the guy you'd be baptized, is becoming more, more popular than we are. And everyone's going to him. We're your disciples. So if you become less important, we are going to become less important. We don't like this. So you better do something to recapture market share. This is not good. The comparison deal even goes to spiritual arenas. I'll tell you what, I'm not crazy about going to pastor's conferences. You know why? The comparison game is revolting. Everyone wants to talk nickels and noses, bucks in the plate and butts in the seat. That's what it's all about. What's supposed to be encouraging and refreshing turns out to just be a degrading comparison game. John's disciples are seeing the nickels and noses drift off in Jesus' direction. They feel threatened. But thank goodness John the Baptist gets it. By the way, don't miss the irony. He's labeled the Baptist. The best nickel and nose counters in the modern church business, okay? This is what John says. A person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify That I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. Don't miss that part. Listens for him. And is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. And those beautiful words, he must become greater, I must become less. You see... You don't have to worry about who's the cheetah and who's the caribou and who's the wounded sloth. He says, I know who I am. And it begins with who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. It's not me. That's a really good place for all of us to start, a good place of liberation. So just to keep you into this today, keep you awake, you'll want to turn to someone and say, I am not the Messiah. Or if it's more helpful to you, you might want to say, you are not the Messiah. Go ahead right now. (laughs) Have a word. Oh, boy. Then John talks about who he is. 
He lets him know who he is. It's a remarkable picture, really. He said, I told you I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bride. He's using an image here from Hebrew weddings. There would be this character who had an official role, something like uh, the best man in our weddings. The Hebrew word for this is a a shoshbin, a friend of the groom. He would provide a lot of ceremonial functions, just like a best man would. But the final task of this man, he'd stand in front of the bridal tent. He'd stand there. And the bride would be inside at the end of the day's festivities. He would guard the tent so nobody could come in and be with the bride. And then it would be dark. And what would happen? He'd hear the groom's voice. Did you hear him? I hear the, I wait for the groom's voice. I listen for the groom's voice. He'd stand and he'd wait for the groom's voice. And then he'd allow the groom on in. And at that point, he'd have the joy of knowing, I did my job. I helped my friend. And now the groom and bride are together. John says, that's me. I'm not the groom. The bride belongs to him. The church belongs to Jesus. She's not mine. The people aren't mine. If I try to grab for that joy that belongs to him, I will not get my joy, but I will lose my joy. So don't you think when other people are going to Jesus instead of me, that it's causing me to lose my joy, John says. My joy is fulfilled. I'm the friend of the groom, and I'm glad that the groom is finally here to take his bride. Do you remember a few years back, a movie called Bride Wars? Did you happen to watch that one? It's kind of fun. Two girls, friends for life, want to have their wedding on the same day, and they really kind of go after each other and just cause a mess. Uh, Sometimes churches run a pretty good episode of Bride Wars. We do a pretty good job of kind of demeaning the other brides in town or the other brides in the area. We, we like to think that, that we're the bride that everybody should look at and nobody else. I look around town, you know, village is about to complete a building and move in. Manuka just completed an addition. Grace is doing well. You got these great churches in the area, and I, and I need to say this every once in a while. They are not our competitors. We are a part of the same family on the same team both working in different parts of the field, but they are not our competitors. Our competitors, anything that pulls you away from God and the church, anything. And these days, it's primarily entertainment, primarily entertainment that pulls us away from God and his bride. So whether it's you know softball or soccer or tumbling or God knows what we're doing these days, it's those things that are the competitors for our hearts, not another church. Now, having said that, I think you made a great choice. <laughs> and I think you should be here. And I'm glad you're here, okay? It's a great choice. But please don't go skimming from them. That, we're not in competition as brides. We are instead trying to draw everyone we can to Jesus and continue to see them drawn away from things that compete for their heart. John has this amazing statement, he must grow greater, I must grow lesser. In other words, my life is not centered on me. This is really an important thing to understand about the way life works. The more my ego is the center of my life's purposes, the more miserable I will be. The more God is at the center of my life, this strange paradox happens. When I die to my ego, when I put God in the center of my life, the 
my life gets greater. My world gets bigger. I must grow lesser. He must grow later. That's greater. That's kingdom life. That's what life is really all about. We live in a crazy world. I have to compare myself to everything else. So I, I have to decide if I'm a cheater or something else. There's, there's another way. There's another way to live. Uh, here are a couple of questions that we need to just take home with us today as we continue to process this. The first question would be this. Who am I comparing myself to? Who's the person that I find is the point of, of comparison in my life all the time? When I'm looking around, where's it going? I, I just really invite you to think about that one. You know, you're probably not going to compare yourself financially to Bill Gates. I get that. But maybe it's the person down the hall or down the street, down the road, someone close by. I find it happens too often when we look at somebody else's wall, right? The dreaded Facebook wall. I mean, how many of you sat in the dark, staring at your screen, chewing on your gums, thinking, I wish I had that life? Because everybody looks great on Facebook. Except when they're whining, which we talked about last week, you're not supposed to do that. You know? Oh my goodness, marriages look fantastic on Facebook. Families smiling at dinner. Who smiles at dinner? You know? I mean, you're looking at these pictures and you're going, this is fantastic. Look, this kid, he's an amazing athlete. Look at this kid. Oh my word. I just wish I had a kid that even wanted to be in the same room as me. We do all this comparing, you know? We cast a jealous eye on other people's wall. I mean, come on, really. Now, let's just flip this a moment, folks. Some of us are really doing a great job looking our, making our life look a lot better than it is. A lot. Why do we have an obsessive need to say, look at how happy I am. Look at my... I mean, it's, I get it. I, believe me, I've done my fair share of shots of my kids and everything else. But how often do we do it thinking, I hope everybody sees how good my life is. I hope everybody sees how well things are going for me. Uh, we got to think that through a little bit. Why is it important that I'm trying to impress someone else? How much of the truth of my story am I telling every time I post a picture? Now, just think about it. Start with the question, who am I comparing myself to? Then ask those questions God asked. Why am I angry? What is it I really want? Who would my best self be? Then ask What's the joy God has for me? What are the gifts God has given to me? What are the tasks God has assigned for me? Just like John knowing he was the bridegroom and not the bride, not, not, the, not the groom. God hasn't asked me to be someone else. I don't have to be a cheetah. I don't have to be a David. I don't have to be a Jacob. I have to be me. God is calling you to be you, not to be someone else. I promise you there's joy in loving the people around you and doing the thing God has called you to do and, and giving him the gifts he's given you to give and stretching in the areas he's asked you to stretch. I promise you there's joy in that. Then, by the way, we'll give you a little extra credit work if you really want to work this through. If you're struggling with that wall you're looking at or if there's that person in your life, that the comparison always comes back. Why don't you try this this week? Every time they come to their, your mind and you have that little jealous moment, why don't you pray God's very best on them this week? God, I pray that they'd have an awesome week. And mean it. Really mean it. Just allow yourself to go that extra piece to start longing for the best for them. I promise you God is going to expose some very interesting things in your heart 
when you start that process of saying, I, I actually want what's best for that other person. By the way, Jesus knows all about envy. There's a little line in the, in the crucifixion story. You, you might glance over and not even see that it's there. It's found in Mark 15. It says, Pilate saw it was out of envy that the chief priests handed him over. Out of envy. It was envy that caused this. Envy is what killed Jesus. Everybody's going to him. That means he's not going to us. And that's a problem. They're not cheering for us. We have to kill this guy. We have to kill the competition. It's the story of the whole human race. There's a last little story I want to share. It's one I love, and it's kind of funny. It's at the very end of the Gospel of John. Jesus is restoring Peter. You remember that story at the end? Peter's so human, he's messed up in every way possible. Jesus is recommissioning him. He's telling him, I want you to feed my sheep. Then at the very end, he tells Peter the kind of death he's going to die when he dies. Peter's going to suffer. It's going to be very hard. And through that suffering, he's going to glorify God. And there's an eternity of joy that lies before him after that. Jesus tells Peter about it. And then this weird thing happens. John, the loved disciple, walks by. The Bible says, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? (laughs) There's this little dynamic going on with Peter and John that you got to know about it. Uh, You remember in John's gospel, John is referred to as what? The disciple Jesus loved. What does that mean? Well, Peter's not the disciple that Jesus loved, right? At the Last Supper, we're told that John is reclining next to Jesus. He's got his head on Jesus. He's in the seat of honor. What does that mean? Peter's not. At the resurrection, we're told Peter and John raced to the tomb. They actually, somebody, somebody recorded this, okay? They raced to the tomb. John got there first. They're having a race. John got there first. John outruns Peter after the resurrection. They're going fishing. And, and they're out there and they see a figure off in the distance. Who recognizes him? Not Peter. John. John recognizes him. It's, it's John again, over and over. John, 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 John. It's always John. Peter sees him. And he says, Lord, what about him? What about John, John, John? It's always John. He's your favorite. He's the disciple you love. Jesus answered him, if I want John to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? What a great answer, huh? What is it to you? You must follow me. You know what Jesus is saying? Your eyes are in the wrong place. Stop looking at John and start looking at Jesus. Stop trying to figure out what's going on with John and start following Jesus. It is only when we get our eyes in the right place that we will get any victory over this comparing stuff. We've got to get our eyes off of the person we believe is our competition and onto the person who is our Savior and Master and Lord. Let's pray together. I'd invite you to take a moment of self-reflection. Doing really honest self-examination is a very important part of the spiritual life and spiritual growth, and it's often neglected in our day. So just take a moment, real real honest, just you and God. Who are you really comparing yourself to? It could be somebody who seems more successful, more attractive, has a better family. You know, the funny part, you may even at times compare yourself to you, a season that was better, or a season that was worse, and now you feel better about you. Take a moment to tell your Heavenly Father about that. God already knows. 
not going to be a surprise to him, and ask him for help. God knows that that little worm that gets inside and eats away at our soul. It keeps us from, from loving and from joy and from gratitude. Ask God today, would you, would you liberate me? Would you free me? Would you deliver me? And especially thank God for Jesus. Our prayer is that he would grow greater while we grow smaller. That we would grow more and more for him to be the center of our lives. And that our ego and our sin would die. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning as we turn our eyes toward communion, we in a sense have another story of comparison. A bunch of people feeling pretty good about themselves in John chapter 8. It says at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and Pharisees, the righteous ones, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we are told to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down and started to write with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any, of, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older, one first, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. And neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. I'll never forget walking to lunch with several young leaders after a teaching I had done on the season of spiritual life in which God is dismantling the false self in order for the true self to emerge more fully. We had talked about the fact that this season feels like death, and in fact it is. The death of that which is false in order for something truer to come to life. Clearly the teaching had unnerved them, for as we walked together, one of them asked, does everyone have to go through this painful place in the spiritual life? I stopped and thought for a moment, and finally said the only thing I could think to say. Well, even Jesus had to die in order for the will of God to come forth in his life. This week's lesson brings us face to face with one of the great paradoxes of our faith. That in order to really live, we must die. That before we can reign with Christ, we must first share in his sufferings. That when God begins to do a new thing, old things must pass away. That in order to experience resurrection, we too must die. That's the bad news. <clears throat> the good news is that the only thing we really stand to lose is the false self which is not real anyway. The only thing passing away is that crusty old thing that is no longer useful. 
The spiritual journey is not a career or success story. It's a series of small humiliations of the false self that become more and more profound. These make room inside of us for the Holy Spirit to come in and heal. What, pre- what prevents us from being available to God is gradually evacuated as we keep getting closer and closer to our center, the place where God dwells within us as redeemed people. Oftentimes, it is suffering that initiates these necessary evacuations. Even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Lent, then, is a time to practice dying in small ways so that when bigger deaths come, we will know how to let go of that which is no longer needed. It is time to learn obedience in and through the things that we suffer, just like Jesus did. It is a time for experiencing what it is like to have our outer nature wasting away while our inner nature is being renewed day by day. 24 states, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So during our time of silence, we have some questions for reflection. You might think about them in light of comparison we talked about today. What needs to die in me in order for the will of God to come forth in my life? What new thing is God doing in my life that requires some old things to pass away? Where do I sense God wanting to teach me obedience through the things I am suffering? You can take any one of those questions and reflect on them. Or you might even just take some time to focus on the cross on the screen and occasionally remind yourself of those words in prayer. He must increase. I must decrease. He must grow greater. I must grow smaller. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we are a church ready for you. Even so, come. Lord Jesus, come. It's my prayer for you that you'll be able to own those words. Hard to have it well with your soul when you're comparing yourselves to others all the time. And it's only when we come to that place of eyes on Jesus nowhere else that we'll have the kind of healthy soul we're longing for. Our servers are coming right now to receive the offering. We have a few things to share with you as they do that. Um, one, this afternoon, you're on your way somewhere. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so again, <clears throat> Revive is not meeting here tonight. We are actually leaving, uh, for those of you who got um, a spot on the trip, we are leaving at 2.30 from Southfield, and we will return here by 8 o'clock, again, to Southfield. So if you are going on the trip, you need to be here at 2.30, no later, because uh, we need to get rolling. Mm-hmm. Our journey toward Easter is getting close to an end. Yeah, and this yeah. is the fifth week of next week's Palm Sunday, right? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then, right? and then Easter, so it is here. So um, tell us a little bit about Easter, what's going on. So we, have, we actually <clears throat> have a lot going on. And obviously, uh, with Easter and how big that service normally is, we're going to need a lot of extra hands. Uh, so if you are interested in helping with childcare, with parking, with uh, coffee, with anything, if you have uh, a little sp- time to spare to help out, and make uh, the next two Sundays go smoothly, let us know. Uh, You can let us know on your card, or you can let us know by email, or by contacting us through uh, the church website. So your card's already in the plate. Would you mind passing those back? No, kidding. Um, We'll send out an email early this week, and you can go ahead and respond to that. Uh, We've also have Good Friday. Now, Good Friday's 
uh, 7 o'clock that Friday night. Yep. Beautiful, quiet service. Talk about your own experience with that for a moment. Well, I mean, my <clears throat> greatest memories of Good Friday are always afterwards when uh, the Pap Kids eat all the leftover communion. But uh, no, that's... <laughs> We didn't get dinner that those nights. Nice. Okay. Uh, yeah. Anyway, no. Uh, Good Friday. Good Friday is great. Things you uh, shouldn't know. Anyway, <laughs> Good Friday is great. Uh, it's again about forty-five minutes long, and it is. It's just a time to come and reflect. And it's throughout the years, I've never seen more people cry. Uh, and it's year after year after year. It doesn't matter how many times you've come, how many times you've thought about that story. You know Jesus died, uh, but. Again, time after time, you come here and you just sit in that, sit in his presence and and reflect on what happened and what his sacrifice was, and it's just incredibly moving. So again, I really encourage you if if you're in town, if you're in the area, come on out for that because again, it is no matter how many times you've been here, it's it's a really powerful thing. We'll also have a schedule published for you. You know, I'm moved at the time of Easter and especially thinking about the crucifixion of the night before when Jesus is with his disciples and they're drifting off to sleep. And he says, could you not watch with me for one hour? And then encourages some of us to, to actually enter into what we, what we might call a vigil, to just spend time waiting in the presence of God. We have a schedule on Friday and throughout Saturday where uh, the, the building will be open for you to be able to just come sit in quiet, sit and uh, adore and think in the presence of God, just worshiping our Savior. So we'll be publishing that for you as well. One other thing, and we'll head on our way. Uh, we have a lot of videos associated with the church and activities around here. How do people access those? Yeah, so <clears throat> videos from Rethink Christmas, from the Women's Retreat, the Green Lake video from last year, which, by the way, Green Lake registration is out. Uh, but all these videos, uh, we are constantly asked, hey, where can we find those? If you go to the website and go down to the bottom and you find all of our links to the Facebook, uh, Southfield Twitter, all that, right there, there's, uh, right next to that, there's a link for the YouTube, for our Southfield YouTube. So if you click on that, you can find the link for all of the videos that we've uploaded throughout, um, throughout our time. And again, it's, it's fun to just go back and watch some of those just to remember how awesome and crazy and hectic some of those events were. Mm-hmm. It's great. Why don't you stand? We're going to pray as we leave today. Now, Father in heaven, when we sit by ourselves in a chair, it is so easy to be godly. It is so easy in this moment to not let our, our minds go to places we don't want them to go. But, but even as we walk out of this room, there will be that, that temptation to compare. And, um, and this week, we'll probably be even more aware of it than normal. I pray that that awareness would not cause us to become green with envy, but instead it would cause us to turn our eyes to Jesus, to look at his face, and to follow him with our whole hearts. We pray that there will come a day that when it comes to this issue of comparison, we will be able to say with all honesty, it is well with my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy your week. We'll see you.